Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Soho Radio Podcast, showcasing some of the best broadcasts from our online radio station, right from the heart of Soho, London. Across our music and culture channels, we have a wide range of shows covering every genre, along with chat shows, discussions and special broadcasts. Welcome. Here is just one of our recent shows. To catch the full show, it's a great pleasure. Listen, um, listen I was talking a little bit about you there in the intro, but far better, I think, to hear it from Madame Lapoustra's mouth. Who is Madame Lapoustra? I I can probably say I've had quite an eclectic career so far. I've done a bit of everything. And I think that in the beginning, that was quite confusing for people. I, I remember people used to say, oh, you look very nice, but what do you do? So I think, but I guess for the last six years, I've been based in Berlin and um, I started a, a theater play, kind of an immersive show, do a bit of acting as well in Babylon Berlin. Season three, I got introduced and I'm also in the upcoming season four, which I hear is coming out in October on Sky. And I always actually wanted to be a film actor, but it didn't quite work out. So I kind of fell into variety and cabaret, basically just learned everything on the job. And also I just made it up as I went along. You're being rather, rather modest there because you're, I mean, in terms of performance art, I mean, your, your aesthetics are remarkable, actually. Very beautiful and strange. Nowadays, uh, if you, you know, look at... The, you know, the explosion of drag as such. I mean, the makeup and the stuff that these kids do, it's absolutely amazing. So I kind of feel a bit out of date, perhaps. I think when, when I was working in London a lot, people really liked my aesthetic and call it extreme or avant-garde or frightening or whatever, but I don't compare to what's, what's out there now. But yeah, the white makeup, I think it's like a Piero base, the clown kind of, and that kind of stuff. And then I would just kind of change... There is character. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's an archetypal look. I was going to talk to you a little bit later about not just in terms of what we're going to talk about the Berlin cabaret, but also, um, you know, there's links with other kind of cabarets like the Cabaret Russe and and uh, Vertinsky as well, with this kind of Piero figure, which is this kind of wonderful dreamlike character, which sort of stalks and pirouettes through these strange lost uh, places why don't we dive in because you have been researching it as well as acting it as well as living it rather the so-called Weimar Cabaret so for anybody who doesn't know Germany has lost the first world war and Kaiser Wilhelm II the king or emperor has to resign uh, because there's loads of protests and there's a new republican government based in the town of Weimar and it's all quite positive for a while isn't it I mean Germans are all equal, they've got the same civil rights and responsibilities, got right to freedom of expression, peaceful assembly, freedom of religion, there's no state church, all very liberal and open. But there's a big economic problem because Germany has to pay reparations to the countries that won the First World War, which means they've got these huge debts um, which people are resentful about. And as a consequence of not being able to pay them, the government starts to print money and they get hyperinflation sounds a bit familiar at the moment um and of course that creates this economic chaos there's a big depression and that allows the nazis to arise i mean people are, are 
fascinated by this period and so much came out of it keep discovering more and more to really understand the period but it's just fascinating especially from the artistic size side um, an innovative time everything was booming fashion art previously in kaiser time when we talk about theater and stuff for instance there was heavy censorship so if you put anything you put on stage had to be pre-approved by uh, so you had to send your script and everything that you were planning to do on stage, it had to be approved. So they were kind of checking there was nothing offensive. If you did do something on stage, you could be heavily fined. Your license could be revoked. So they were quite strict. So when the Weimar Republic came, there were still things that were obviously not allowed, but the authorities looked the other way so people could get away with much more. And that's obviously very evident on, on um, when we look at the cabaret. New dancing came in, which was in vogue in the beginning. So there was lots of new dancing. It was called Schönheitsabende, which translates as beauty evenings. So they, they, they really packaged it nicely. But it was, in fact, new dancing. So people would go and see this. Um, and then obviously new objectivity, Neue Sachlichkeit art movement that came in. Otto Dix was a very um, prominent member of this movement. In Germany, as early as the late 1800s, I believe, by Magnus Hirschfeld, there were campaign campaigns for uh, gay rights. Well, that th- that in itself is quite extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, very, very early. So, I mean, it seems to me as well is that it's this rather dreamlike time as well, because it's actually sandwiched between these two cataclysmic events, particularly for Germany, two world wars which Germany loses. Whereas in Britain, the 1920s, particularly the 30s, you get the impression that they're rather kind of dreary. It was, yes. I think that's why someone like Christopher Sherwood did come to Berlin, because obviously homosexuality was illegal in the, in, um, in the UK. And it, it was still illegal in, in Berlin as well. It could be as late as the 70s when that was, the late 60s, I don't know. So it was illegal, but you know, you could come here and indulge in, in any fantasy that you had. So people did come to Berlin to kind of uh, take part of all this newly found freedom and so-called decadence that was happening. We're gonna hear a few tunes from the era that you've chosen. Let's have one now. What's this? Oh yeah, uh, the Lavender Song. This was written in 1920. It was supposedly the first gay album. It must have been an exciting place to be, especially after the First World War and just coming out of the Victorian, Edwardian period. Then there was also all the poverty and financial problems people had. People lost all their money. Well, very famously, of course, there was this hyperinflation period, wasn't there? These images of people with carts full of money to buy a loaf of bread. Just to go back a little bit then, you were talking about the time before that. Obviously, there was the war before that and with the Kaiser, and that was a time when there was censorship. Like most places during the war, they tend to censor more. But even before that, it had been fairly staid, hadn't it? So everything that was on stage had to be pre-approved, you know, and things were forbidden. So I'm trying to still trying to understand that what it was that suddenly kicked the doors of the salons open. They took censorship away. That in itself is quite a rare thing, is in the 20th century. We see more and more censorship rather than less and less. So what was it in the sort of psyche? Was it the cataclysmic effect of losing a war that, you know, the mortality involved in that and the, the that sense of doom that brought about this extraordinary period? I think it's a lot of different things that came together at that specific time. 
Fate came, came in as well. I mean, the first cabaret apparently in 1901, but it was nothing like the cabarets that we know now. It wasn't as risque or during the First World War, a lot of shows became very nationalistic and they wanted uh, positive things to make uh, people feel good and nothing that would insult, make the Germans look bad. And also variety shows were the, the most popular form of entertainment. There was this huge culture here in the UK of music hall. It was the main popular entertainment, right? We're in an era before film. You know, we're in an era before even radio and even recorded music is in its infancy, you know, and so this was the popular entertainment, wasn't it? It was. I mean, vaudeville sort of, I think, started in the state or the mid 800s and not. Variety shows was very uh, popular here during that time. And actually, when cabaret started springing up everywhere, uh, directors, theatre directors, they were very angry about it because a lot of these cabarets didn't have any licences. Apparently in Germany that time you had to close at 11 o'clock at night. You couldn't go past that. And a lot of cabarets went on after that and sort of stole away a lot of the audience. And also tastes changed, you know, with all developments in the early 1900s. So there was a lot of change happening and people just, I think, got bored and cabaret was the new kid on the blog. It was fashionable. And um, and then I think it really took off in the in the mid-20s, the golden 20s. The golden 20s, yeah, which is a bit like the roaring 20s in the States, right, yeah. This was a, also an entertainment which was across the board because I suppose I associate with the roaring 20s in the States it being a kind of certain clique of quite well-to-do uh, people and maybe also almost more aristocratic flappers and stuff, whereas in Berlin, was this cabaret across the class divide? Was it all sorts of people who went there? Or was it, again, a kind of elitist bohemian set that frequented them? I think when we look at when we look at this period, I think we sometimes forget that our society didn't all partake in this or didn't have the money to buy the latest fashions or go to these clubs. I do think it was maybe perhaps for a smaller part of society that most people were very, very poor. And what I do like about Babylon Berlin is they really do show how people lived. I mean, Berlin was horribly overcrowded. Everyone was moving here because Berlin, Mark Twain had said Berlin was the new Chicago because at that time, Chicago was the most uh, exciting and modern city. Things were just developing left and right. People were moving from the countryside to Berlin. They had a lot of immigrants. So the city just struggled with accommodation. So people just, they were crammed in buildings. Mm -hmm. So um, I don't think everyone was able to take part of this this booming the 20s as we see it now and of, of, and you know when dancing came in the dance craze and all these clubs opened and i think it was again just a kind of result of this horrible period of the first world war people were just kind of tired and they just wanted to have fun they wanted to go out late at night and stay out especially for women the term neue frau the, no, the new woman who felt emancipated and uh, could go out and you know, have new fashions to choose from and cut the hair and smoke and be completely independent from men. So there's so many little things that I think just came together to create this energy, this, this wonderful time, even though they did have a lot of problems, financial and, you know, the, the political situation was obviously still very unstable. So I think that the Golden Twenties refers more to the period from 1924 to not. 29 just before the depression hit so it's actually not that many years that will really kind of 
what we think about as um, decadent period as such. Let's have another tune. This song is called Ach ihr hast. It is uh, performed by Blandine Ebinger. She was the wife of a Friedrich Hollander. And the song basically means uh, he hates it when I love him, he hates it when I the thing that, that the cabaret had in common with the variety shows was, for, or music hall too, was that it was a series of short acts, wasn't it? So in the music hall and the variety stages of the UK, I mean, you'd have people, performers who had developed an act and it often quite silly things or, you know, they could, they could do some whistling act and they would tour, tour the country and be part of a programme of events at one particular evening, you know, when they might perform for two and a half minutes or five minutes and then another performer on, right? So it shared that and it sort of evolved out of that, but it was much more rich, wasn't it, in terms of... You have of to define a cabaret. It's normally um, in a tavern or a pub and you will have a MC on stage or as they know in German uh, cabaret culture, a conferencier. It's actually a French word. Um, and then you will have people normally sitting at tables, there will be food and drink served, and the, the role of the MC would be to obviously introduce the acts and to um, comment on the day, comment on politics, and, um, and then there'll be normally about eight to ten acts, it could range anything from a few minutes to three or four minutes, it, it, it would have been monologues, singing, um, skits, variety shows had more acrobatics. Anything that would be entertaining could be classified as a vaudeville act. And a lot of these performers had one act their whole lives. And they would perform yeah. it over and over. So it's yeah, it's quite extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, people would actually perfect something like been able to whistle with their bottom or something, right? And then they would basically tour the entire life performing this thing. And, and if something interesting when the talkies came in, and, and this killed uh, variety in vaudeville, and a lot of performers actually sold their acts because they they either retired or they couldn't make the transition. And I think that was the same everywhere. But of course, Berlin has a very specific kind of formula, and I think what makes Berlin cabaret so interesting it has the Berliner Schnauzer, which it has this kind of biting satire and sarcasm and rudeness to it and it's still to this day it has that extra special juice i think that made that the cabaret very uh, uniquely berliner cabaret we should also say that berlin itself was quite different than the rest of germany right so it like in britain there was lots of conservative parts of germany particular kind of little world right oh, and definitely yeah and it still is today there's a book uh, by Mal Gord. He put this book together, Voluptuous Panic. It's a really interesting, fun book. Um, it kind of focuses on the erotic side of Berlin. There's a line in his book where Berliners believe that there was something in the air to make them crazy and dance until the next day and uh, have all this energy and it makes you lose your inhibitions. And I do feel there is something, even today, there is an energy in the air that makes you feel inspired or excited. There's always something happening. When I'm in, in Berlin, I'm, I'm my most anxious. And as soon as I go back <laughs> to the UK, I seem to be relaxed. It's a sort of psychic geographic thing then, isn't it? Because it's like it's there all the way through the Weimar. And then and then still, you know, people f flock to Berlin from the UK, right? London clubbers flock to, flock to Berlin and from around the world, right? And it's still got that kind of decadent, hedonistic, edgy pulse. People just flock here. And I mean, we, we have a housing crisis right now because it's just too many people who want to come here so i think berlin is just such a fascinating city 
very turbulent history, but just something here that mm. seemed to be very special and I haven't encountered anywhere else. But I just wanted to come back to the difference between cabaret and cabaret, which there is a distinction. So cabaret is kind of what we think about when we maybe think about Parisian cabaret, where it started. But cabaret, which is spelled with a, with a K and a double T at the end, that was kind of a, a more political, satirical form of cabaret, which is, again, very distinctively Berlin. And it wasn't frivolous kind of light entertainment as such. It was quite, it could be quite political and with satire. And that's kind of where you probably would encounter this Berliner schnauzer, this wit, biting, you know, commentary. When I started in London, cabaret was part of burlesque. So they kind of put everything together in a, in a vaudeville. So you would have a burlesque show, but they would take on the vaudeville uh, format, which means it's one act after the other and it could be anything. Um, so it, it became an umbrella term. And now, obviously, I think personally, I think we're going again through a, some sort of rebirth. But I think cabaret is quite a tenacious genre and it will always come back Mm. and reinvented. I never wanted to be a cabaret performer. I just fell into it. If I took a different route, I wouldn't have become the performer or maybe I wouldn't have ended up being in Berlin and exploring the, the German cabaret of that period. You have explored it from the inside, as it were, not just as a sort of subject for academic historic research. You've actually got inside it. So you're seeing it from the point of view of the performer. I used to do a lot of 1920s themed shows and I remember doing them and they were always so watered down. I had to, you couldn't do this on stage, you couldn't do that. So I think when I moved here, I said, right, I, I would like to explore a show that could be as authentic to the time, to the spirit of the time, with absolute freedom, no restrictions. And I wanted to do it as as real as I possibly could, because there's no footage that remained from inside a cabaret. I mean, there's a few photos here and there, but there isn't any recordings, unfortunately. Maybe they were destroyed or maybe they just didn't film inside. You have to use your imagination. And when I moved here, I, was, I wanted to really bring something back, as much authentic material in it that I could find, and really move past the kind of Marlena Dietrich and Liza Minnelli references, because that's kind of where it stops for most people. And they, they seem to kind of base their whole concept or, or idea of what it is on this film or a bit of Marlene Dietrich, but there, there's obviously much more. For a lot of people, if they've seen the film Cabaret, the Bob Foss film, you know, which I love, by the way, I mean, I love that film, but, uh, but it's a terrific film, but, um, but that is, for most of us, the extent of what we know and what we imagine about it. And some of the characters that you talked about, um, which... I was certainly completely unaware of, um, are fascinating because they were doing things which were particularly, at the time, seemed very adventurous and avant-garde, like Anita Berber. This is a sidebar. Anita Berber was a German dancer, actress and writer, and, very famously, the subject of an Otto Dix painting. Born in Leipzig to divorced bohemian parents, a cabaret artist and a violinist, by the time she was 16, she had moved to Berlin and made her debut as a cabaret dancer. By 1918, she was working in film and began dancing nude in 1919. She was scandalous, androgynous and infamous, quickly making a name for herself on the Berlin scene. She wore heavy makeup, 
which on the black and white photos and films of the time came across as jet black lipstick painted across the heart-shaped part of her skinny lips and charcoal eyes. Her hair was cut fashionably in a short bob, frequently bright red. Berber's cocaine addiction and bisexuality were matters of public debate. She was allegedly the sexual slave of a woman and the woman's 15-year-old daughter. She could often be seen in Berlin's hotel lobbies, nightclubs and casinos, naked, apart from an elegant sable wrap, with a pet monkey and a silver brooch packed with cocaine. Besides being a cocaine addict, she was an alcoholic, but at the age of 29, gave up both suddenly and completely. She was diagnosed with galloping tuberculosis while performing abroad and died November 10th, 1928. I mean, she's a really fascinating character. She was a dancer and she was really one of the first uh, new dancers in Berlin. There was a few people before her that did new dancing, but she was the first one that really became famous and notorious at the same time. There's a bar in Berlin called Anita Berbenau. There is a park that was the cemetery that she was buried in. And now it's been um, rebranded as a park and it's called Anita Berber. So they, they, there's a lot of interest in her now. She's, a, she's kind of a, a heroine for a lot of people. I mean, she was very rock and roll and, and um, the scandals and her drug use and sex affairs. And just so people kind of love all that, all kind of the salacious, you know, smarty bits of her. But I, I think she was much more than that. She was an absolute exhibitionist. There's a there's a word in German called Hampensau. It's it's someone who can't get enough attention on stage, and it's just she really lived on the stage, and she really fed off this energy, whether it was shock or um, it was disgust. She was very provocative in what she did. She really lived her life. Um, uh, on her own terms, she was very open sexually. She, she would have affairs. Apparently, she slept with a sexologist, uh, Magnus Hirschfeld. He was uh, he was a gay man, and he said that was the only woman he slept with. She she seemed to have had this this magnetic personality, and uh, but also she she sounds like she was very complicated and uh, obviously entitled. I don't think she was a particularly nice person, from what I can read, the impression I get. But she lived her life un uh, unapologetically. She lived it without any consequences and any care or what, what people thought. And I mean, we're, we're talking now about the beginning of the 20s, where she was actually really already started to be known for her new dancing. She was in several silent films and she was just uh, involved in scandal after scandal. Apparently she insulted the king of Yugoslavia and she was she was in prison for six weeks for that. So I think people just like this idea of this woman just just taking control of her life mm -hmm. and just not caring. And I I think that's and 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 on the other hand, she was a very serious dancer. I think that's a thing that people kind of forget about or we don't talk about a lot. Is she was very serious about her dancing. She she really blossomed and she she was she came alive when she was on stage and and this was also the time of uh, expressionism and Ausdruck-Tanz, which is a kind of expressionistic dance that she was involved in. And um, so she also set a lot of trends. Apparently the prostitutes copied her look. She was that kind of uh, famous and feared and um, desired all at once. And 
I mean, she was a big celebrity and uh, became darling of the tabloids. So she made news wherever she went. Right, and you've got a song or a piece connected with her, right? This track is called Morphium. It is by Misha Skolienski, and this song was actually composed for the dancer Tiberba for one of her performances, also entitled, entitled Morphium. 